Oh, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Cole Flanagan. Uh, I know a lot of you. I don't know a lot of you. Um, I've been a part of Waipuna now for about four years uh, with my family. Uh, Valerie is my wife, and we've been serving with Youth with a Mission since the summer of 2019, which is when we moved back to the island here and um, began attending Waipuna. Uh, but I, I just want to introduce you to my children because it's topical uh, not just to show you pictures of my kids, but uh, because we're talking about new birth. Uh, so um, we are going to be, just as a heads up if you want to start turning in now, we're going to be in John chapter 3. We're going to be talking about when Jesus says uh, that we have to be born again. But I just want to introduce you to my kids real fast. So Matilda is in the middle, crouching down, about to attack me. Ivy is over here. She's two. And then my daughter Ruth was born last Wednesday, so eight, nine days ago. So uh, Valerie... Uh, is doing well. Ruth's doing well. Family's doing good. Girls are adjusting to having a little one in the house, and we are adjusting to watching two little toddlers play while a tiny one is over in the corner, right? So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good life. It's a really good life, and we're getting to celebrate new birth. And a couple months ago, I guess it was a couple months ago, hey, when Sean asked me if I'd be interested in preaching, uh, this passage was kind of a, the highlighted weekend, and I knew it was going to be right around the birth of my daughter, and uh, so I was pretty excited. Uh, it took a couple minutes to say yes, because, you know, having a new child is a, is a burden to uh, your time, to your sleep, to all those things, uh, but she has just really only been a blessing. So um, we're talking about the life and ministry of Jesus over these weeks leading up to Easter. We've been in this series for five weeks now, something like that, um, and, and Jesus came this has is, this is kind of been our tagline, right? Jesus came to do something brand new in the world and for the world, right? Now, uh, as Sean said last week, Jesus did not come to continue something. He came to replace something, right? To do something new in the world. And we've been talking about these particular moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. We highlighted uh, his baptism. We highlighted temptation. We highlighted his calling his disciples. These different moments in the life and ministry of Jesus uh, that really began to turn the world upside down, change the course of history, move the world in a new direction. And the amazing thing is that God, this guy, Jesus was God coming to do this in first century Jewish body, Roman-occupied Israel, like in a specific time and space in history. So we, we've talked about several of these different checkpoints in the ministry of Jesus already. But this weekend, Jesus comes to bring new birth. So we're going to talk about what Jesus means by new birth, why it's so radically new, how we engage with the truth that Jesus, what, what the truth of what Jesus is saying here. But the big idea tonight is simple. You must be born again. You have to be born again. It's that simple. You have to be born again. Like I said, we'll talk about the whys and the hows and such. Um, but like I said, I get to share this right after, eight, nine days after watching uh, little Ruth come into the world. Um, and, and I I, I want to I share just a brief part of this experience because uh, I've been born. You've all been born. That's something we share. Not all of us have given birth. Uh, I have not, obviously. Um, but got, getting to be in the room for it, I want to just uh, highlight something very, very important. That baby did not contribute a thing. You see? That baby did not contribute a thing. And yet, you must be born again. So this is, this is going to be the tension of this passage, right? Jesus is going to command us to do something, and then we're going to have to wait and see how we do it. The big idea is this. You must be born again. The bad news is that just like sweet baby Ruth, uh, you have nothing to offer to make this happen. The good news is that just like Val, 
Jesus has everything necessary to make this happen. So, a couple of things that I want you to keep in your minds as we go through this passage, okay? A couple of things that are just bookends of the Gospel of John that are going to be really informative for understanding what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus right here in this passage. So here they are. It's going to be one here from the beginning of the Gospel of John and then one also from the end of the Gospel of John. So this is from chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, And to all who believed in him, to all who believed in Jesus, he gave the right to be called children of God which you can kind of already, your wheels are already turning, right? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this word, this word is Jesus, right? It says this word became flesh. Back in verse one, we learned that this word is Jesus. So this word is becoming flesh so that we would believe in him, in the grace and truth that he shows, and that by believing in him, we could have life, right? You understand the connection? When we believe in Jesus, we have life, and this life makes us children of God. Born, literally it says, of God. So that's why Jesus has come into the world. John tells us it is so that we could be born of God. Now this next passage is going to come from the end of the Gospel of John, okay? At the end of the book he says this, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, or Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, so John is saying, I've written this stuff down, these specific stories with this specific guy, Nicodemus, the one we're going to look at tonight. I have given these to you so that you could see and believe and have life. John says in this passage right here at the end of the gospel, he says that he, he wrote down everything that Jesus did and said there wouldn't be enough ink in the world. There's not enough paper in the world to write down all the things that Jesus did. So I chose, John says, I chose these things, these specific stories with these specific people so that you would find Jesus and you'd find life, you could believe in him, find brand new life, and be born of God. So this story that we're going to talk about tonight, specifically chosen by John, so that you would see it, so that we could believe and find life in Jesus Christ. You see? You see? So let's talk about Jesus and Nicodemus both, um, and see what we can find out about believing and being born and finding new life. Let's see how we can watch this word become flesh and dwell among us, right? Watch how he talks to people. It's pretty cool. We get to see God talk to people. So our passage tonight, like I said, is coming from John chapter 3. Grab your Bibles, Bible in front of you in the pew if you want, Bible on your phone if you want. Um, if you're with me in your Bible, you got the same print as me. You got page 887. So um, we're going to start actually in chapter 2 verse 23. So just a couple verses up here. It says this, now, when he was in Jerusalem, who is he? Jesus, yes. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He himself knew what was in man. Now, just, that, just so you know, that is just as true about you as it was about these crowds of people standing around Jesus. He knows your heart. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, it goes on, chapter 3, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
we know that you are a teacher. Rabbi means teacher, okay? So he's redundant here, saying, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, okay? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus says, the wind, it blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, God, uh, that your heart is for us. Lord, I, I'm so grateful for the time I've gotten to spend in this passage. So while we were singing those songs about being your children and, and, and being brought to life and not being in the tomb anymore, all those things, God, just ministering to me through this new life, God. And so I just pray, Lord, that you'd use my words. God, you use your word most of all to speak to our hearts, to move our hearts. Would you soften us, Holy Spirit, so that we can see and respond and love the beauty of Jesus and find life in his name. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, so we want to just define our terms here real quick because born again has a lot of baggage, okay? So when I, when I was growing up, being born again was like a way uh, to say that you were an extra committed Christian. Like if, if you said, I, I'm a Christian, like, that's okay, but that guy was a born again Christian. It meant something extra. Um, that might not be true for you. I don't know, like the church community you grew up in, I grew up in a conservative church in Oregon, so many of us come from not that church, right? So, but that's what it meant to me. It was a category that was familiar to me, and it seemed to denote an extra level of intensity and commitment to Jesus. And I am apparently not the only person who feels this way because I looked it up, and dictionary.com says this. A Christian who has experienced a distinct dramatic conversion to faith in Jesus, especially a member of certain Protestant groups that stress this experience, <laughs> this Protestant church that I grew up in. Uh, this is from dictionary.com, and this is wrong. Isn't it awesome to tell the dictionary it's wrong? Um, if you are not born again, you are not a Christian. It's simple, okay? So if dictionary.com had stopped their definition at a Christian, they would have been accurate, right? They had it, they just kept talking. Um, the second thing is, so that's, that's important because Jesus is going to talk about being born again. It just is a Christian. It's a person who has met Jesus. The second thing, Jesus is talking to a dude 
who basically had the Old Testament memorized. He knew every law. He gave religiously to the poor. He aided other people in their obedience to the law. And he was even humble enough to come to Jesus. If the essence of saving faith, if the essence of being born again was in human willpower, Nicodemus probably had it. Yeah? Nicodemus probably had it. But Jesus doesn't tell him that the essence of saving faith is doing the right things and believing a couple of true things about God. No. Christianity is not a willpower religion. Okay? No, he tells him something completely confusing to Nicodemus. Something that completely disarms Nicodemus. Completely removes the personal power and agency from Nicodemus. He says you must be born again. Access to the kingdom of God comes through New birth. You understand? If you are not born again, Jesus says, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So being born again is not an extra special category. It's not something that if you're here tonight and you're like, well, I don't want to take it that seriously, so I, like, I don't have to worry about being born again. No. It's, that's it. This is it. It's the only category for Jesus. Jesus is here to do something new in the world and for the world, and nowhere is this clearer than right here in in John chapter 3. Jesus is going to talk to a person, this Pharisee, which we'll talk about here in a second, but Jesus is going to talk to this person who is a symbol, a representative, a clear picture of the old way, and tell him this, you must be born again. You want to talk about a new thing? (laughs) Try being born, right? It's pretty new. It's fresh. So God does not talk about his children as in and super in, He says you must be born again. And a new birth is this, is this, spiritual life given to you by the Spirit of God. Spiritual life given to you by the Spirit of God. So let's, I know we already read the passage here, but I want to try to give you some context, introduce how John so far has introduced Jesus and also how John is going to introduce Nicodemus. So Jesus, we're only in chapter 3 of this gospel, right? So Jesus is new on the scene here in the gospel of John. We're early on in the picture that John is drawing for us of Jesus. John has told us who he is already in a lot of ways. There's actually seven statements of Jesus' identity right in the first couple of chapters of John. Uh, The word at the beginning, the son of God, the light coming into the world, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the owner of the temple in chapter 2, which is a really cool story. And he's a guy who can turn water into wine, we learn in chapter 2. Um, He's going to tell us a lot more about Jesus throughout the rest of his gospel. There's 19 more chapters to go here. But Jesus has also little conversations. He's had brief interactions uh, in the gospel of John with John the Baptist, an important character. A couple of new disciples. His mom, which is a fun story. um, And he has cleared out the temple. So we are early in this story. But Jesus has already done some uh, remarkable things. And John is now just going to zero in on a conversation, which is cool. It's pretty cool. So Jesus, John tells us at the end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, John tells us that Jesus has just impressed people with signs. He has impressed people with signs. We can assume healing, miracles, something, right? Um, Jesus was at the Passover in Jerusalem, and it says many believed in his name when they saw the signs, which he did. Okay, good. Uh, And when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he directly addresses these signs. He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In other words, it appears that Nicodemus was one of these people who was watching Jesus. 
right? He's watching the signs. He's a part of the crowd. He's seeing what's going on, and now he's coming to Jesus. But John tells us also in chapter 2, which is going to be important about Nicodemus, that Jesus did not entrust himself to these people because he knew all men, and he didn't need anybody to bear witness about him. He knew their hearts, and so he did not entrust himself to them, which is a little complicated there, right? Jesus knew what was in the heart of each person listening. So the reason that Jesus does not commit himself to these people is because he knows these people. He knew what was in man. And then let's talk about Nicodemus real quick. So Nicodemus is a part of a group uh, called the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were the professional religious people, essentially. The pastor, no, I'm joking, not Pastor Sean. Um, They were obsessed with God's law, and they were obsessed with protecting themselves and others from breaking the law of God. None of that sounds terribly bad, right? That doesn't sound bad, Um, but there's more. They also, as Jesus is going to uh, tell them often, they put heavy burdens on the people uh, that God did not put on them. They enforced Sabbath laws that were unjust. They pushed religious practices that were impossible for normal people to follow. And they took advantage of people in compromised economic positions at the temple, which is part of what Jesus was coming after them for in chapter 2. So they were not the friends of the people that they were meant to be. They were not the shepherds of the people they were meant to be. So he's also apparently a high-ranking one because it calls him a ruler of the Jews, a ruler of the Jews. So this guy, this Nicodemus, is educated, powerful, influential. Part of a group called the Sanhedrin. It's part of a group called the Sanhedrin. So, but here's the conversation that he has with Jesus. He came to Jesus at night. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs they do unless God is with him. So let's, let's highlight this first little piece here. He comes to Jesus at night. Basically, Nicodemus is coming to Jesus during a time when he will be noticed and recognized by as few people as possible, right? He's coming to Jesus at a time when as few people are going to notice. He comes to Jesus when he can have a conversation with Jesus that he might be ashamed to have in front of everybody else. Uh, we've all been in situations where we have follow-up questions that we don't feel comfortable asking in front of the group, right? Whether it's because we don't want to look stupid for asking the question, we don't want to feel shame coming back to us by the person answering it, right? Whatever the reason is, we, we feel uh, these types of ways, and then we don't follow up with our actual questions. Uh, for me, that's basically my entire high school experience, right? Is totally not understanding what was going on, but being like, yep, got it. Got it? Got it? Because I'm not going to look stupid sitting next to this person. No, teacher, I did not understand how a line can get infinitely closer to zero without crossing the x-axis. Did you guys struggle with that one? Infinitely closer, they said. Uh, I, I didn't get it. And then uh, it did flash eventually. But um, apparently you can just keep adding zeros. Amazing. Um, but I'm just, I just kept putting, right? I just keep putting a brave face on it and say, I, to- I totally get it. What are you talking about? You know? Um, And uh, maybe, just maybe, after class, no one's watching, you go to the teacher. And that's where we are with Nicodemus here. Um, And I want to pause real quick and say that actually after Easter, we're going to be going through a series talking about the... uh, 
the truth that your questions and your doubts are not the enemy of faith in Jesus and that you can actually come to God with your questions and we want Waipuna to be a place where people feel comfortable asking questions and getting those questions answered. So uh, we want to be a community where people feel comfortable asking their questions. I know so many of you guys, in, uh, especially in the, the newcomers classes and things like that, that's your heart is that people would come here and, and feel safe to have doubts and questions and find a place where people also have those doubts and questions. Um, but Nicodemus here is like me in high school, a student going to the teacher after class and saying, hello, I don't get it. And Nicodemus starts also the way that I often would, which is by telling Jesus the thing he already knows, which is awesome. Um, rather than asking his question, he tells Jesus the thing he's already sure of. Nicodemus starts out by saying, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Why did he need to come to Jesus to say that to him? That's not what's on, Jesus, on, that's not what on, on Nicodemus' heart, right? And Jesus knows that. But this is actually also revealing about Nicodemus because we talked about this. Nicodemus is saying something that he probably would not have felt comfortable saying in front of his group. He would not have felt comfortable saying this in front of the Pharisees. He might have been ashamed to say this. And it's actually revealing about the rest of the group too because it says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. They're about to have arguments for the next like seven chapters of John about the identity of Jesus. And it doesn't sound like they know. They're going to fight with Jesus and argue with Jesus. They're going to hate Jesus for what he says we know. You understand? He says, we know you're a teacher come from God. Well, where does Jesus' authority to teach, heal, lead, all these things, where does it come from? It comes from God. The others in this group, they're going to fight Jesus because of this. Nicodemus is coming to him and asking him kind of what's up, right? We know, basically, Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, we know where you come from. But Nicodemus has a deeper question that he doesn't get to and doesn't actually get to ask because Jesus is just going to answer it for him. We can deduce what that question is uh, because Jesus is going to get right to it. And remember at the end of chapter 2, we just talked about this, Jesus knows what's in the heart of people. Jesus is already clued in to what's going on in Nicodemus's heart. And much like I'm sure my teachers in high school, when I walked up to them, they already knew <laughs> where this brain was. Um, but Jesus' response is simple. He, and Nicodemus does not ask a question. There's no question mark there. Jesus just tells him this. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Evidently, what Nicodemus came to find out was how he could be a part of the true kingdom of God, right? If you're, if you're this guy, um, how can you be in right relationship with God? This is a man who was a part of a group of religious people who were obsessed with the law of God, obsessed with the kingdom of God, obsessed with maneuvering themselves into right standing with God so that they would be free from condemnation. And they're actually effectively going to say that they are God's team to Jesus several times throughout the rest of this gospel. And Jesus is saying to him, listen, dude, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is here, and he has more curiosity than he does have just false assurance, as the other members of his group are going to have, right? But what Jesus says confuses him. And so Nicodemus asks him this, how can a man be born when he is old. And as a person having just watched my daughter be born, 
It's a fair question. Uh, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, this, this question is really important because it actually gets right to the heart of the type of guy Nicodemus is. Um, there's another conversation that Jesus has kind of similar to this one in the other three Gospels with a guy that the other Gospel writers simply call the rich young man or the rich young ruler. Okay, So in, in the other Gospels, this young man asks Jesus what he has to do to be saved. He asks him, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus tells him, well, follow all the commandments. Follow all the commandments. And he thinks he's done that. But Jesus tells him, one thing you lack, because he cuts right to the heart, he tells him that his treasure is with his money, and if he wants to be saved, he has to give it all away. And it says he goes away sad because he had great wealth. Okay? So I imagine that Nicodemus was expecting something when he first came to Jesus. I imagine he was expecting something a little more like that conversation. I suspect that Nicodemus expected Jesus to say something incredibly wise and thought-provoking about the law of God. But instead he tells him, you have to be born again. And and I suspect that Nicodemus thought he was going to go home with a to-do list. Okay, because he, this what he says, can a man crawl back into his mother's womb? Like, I can't write that down, bud, right? Like, I'm, you're not giving me something to do. He was going to go home, he was going to come to Jesus with a question and go home thinking he had a checklist, and then when he completed it, you come back to the teacher and you show him your work, right? That's, that's how our relationships work. We come to him, we say, I want something. He tells you what to do. You go home, you complete it, you show your work but not with Jesus here. Not with Jesus here. He says, get born again, (laughs) which is not something you can put on a checklist. And this confuses our, our picture of the old way, our picture of the law, Nicodemus. It confuses him. It's reasonably confusing. Um, And he's going to ask some more questions, but Jesus isn't finished. So he says this to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this isn't a confusing little paragraph. This is a confusing little paragraph for a lot, well, it's for Nicodemus, and he's uh, like a bigger Bible nerd than we will ever be. Uh, But this is, most commentators agree that what Jesus is saying here about being born of the water and the Spirit is actually a reference to Ezekiel 36, a prophet in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36. So let's read that. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see? Sprinkle clean water, born of the Spirit. Jesus is like, hey man, it's right there. But Nicodemus looks right back at him and says this, how can these things be? Now I think this is a really, really important question because it shows us his confusion. And, and Jesus responds, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Okay. We're going to have a little transition here with Nicodemus in his mind because he's going to go from 
curious observer who wants to put on a front of like, I kind of know what's going on here to being completely disarmed by Jesus. Utterly disarmed. If Jesus was saying something that was not to be found in the Old Testament, right? If Jesus was saying something that you couldn't have been hearing from him echoed throughout these pages in the Old Testament, it would have been probably wrong for him to accuse him in his identity and be like, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things if it wasn't there for him to find. But what he is saying is is that being born again was right there for you in my prophets, right? I sent guys to tell you about this. God is going to sprinkle clean water and bring you to life by the Spirit. This is actually not a new thing, Jesus is saying. He's like, I got to do it. But it's, it's been there. Like I was telling you I was coming to do this new thing. Jesus is showing this guy the gospel through Ezekiel, which is super cool. But more than that, he's showing him that entrance into the family of God is not going to come through the law and the old covenant. It's not going to come through outward expressions of religiosity, Nicodemus. It's not going to come through your checklist. It's not even going to come through care for the poor. It's, it's not going to come that way, okay? The old way. But even in the Old Testament, in the old way, they were telling us about this new way. It's going to come through new birth in the Spirit. Jesus says it right here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This passage in Ezekiel is one of several key passages throughout the uh, Old Testament about this brand new covenant that is coming for the world. There's, there's a lot of them. There's several in Jeremiah. Anyways, but they, the Old Covenant given by God through Moses was full of laws and sacrifices and purification rituals and so much more. This covenant was broken repeatedly. If you read the Old Testament, every page is about them breaking that covenant basically. And this is the old covenant that the Pharisees were so serious about, thinking that in it they would find life. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he is going to bring a new covenant, and a new covenant that is not going to be filled up by finite, fallen, broken people. It's a new covenant that is going to be filled up and sealed by, we're going to get here, but the death of Jesus and the rebirth of the Spirit. He is saying this to Nicodemus, and it's a hard word. But this is what he's saying. You don't have what it takes. You don't. Only I can bring you in. You're not leaving here with a to-do list. You're leaving here begging for help. You understand? You're leaving this conversation desperate to receive something. Not ready to present something. You see? All of Nicodemus' life has been about presenting his work. It's all been centered around his commitment to the law, his commitment to a particular way of life, his willpower to accomplish that way of life, his ability to study and communicate, to learn and apply. His religion has been centered on his ability. And Jesus is telling him that he has no chance. He has no chance. So just picture this scene, right? Nicodemus has watched Jesus all over Jerusalem. He's seen a man of incomparable power work miracles and a man of incomparable love help the needy. He is drawn to this man and seeks him out at night and says, teacher, I'm persuaded that you are from God. And before Nicodemus can take another breath, Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. 
how helpless does Nicodemus feel? Nicodemus is being invited into something new, a new beginning, a new birth. Nicodemus is being shown by Jesus that this old stuff is insufficient. It's insufficient. It's not going to be like that anymore. And pretty cool, these stories back to back. But in chapter 4, Jesus is actually going to restart the geography of worship for the woman at the well, which is a pretty cool story as well. But right here, he's going to restart ultimate, eternal, new life right here for Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't get it right here at this moment, but he's here. The other stories with the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in John are full, full, full of conflict. Jesus is certainly blunt with Nicodemus, but Nicodemus is getting humbled. Nicodemus is getting humbled. He's having his back bent by the weight of what Jesus is saying. He's a teacher of the law, just like Jesus says, and just like Jesus says, he doesn't get it. He needs new life. He needs new categories in his mind to get what Jesus is saying. He needs to have the wind of the Spirit bring him to life. Or he's not going to get this. Or he's not going to get this. Jesus is bringing a whole new way to approach God. Could there be a more important thing? A whole new way to approach God. A new way for God to approach us as well. The world says command following Intellectual assent, those are the ways to God. Jesus says, be born again. Jesus says something hopelessly full of hope, right? When we come to him desperate, we find hope. Because we have no shot of birthing ourselves. Jesus has all the power to do it and all the grace to do it. He wants to do it. Jesus is talking to a Pharisee. A walking billboard for the old way. The strongest upholder of this old covenant. And Jesus is not going to tell him that holiness doesn't matter. Get that out of your head. If it's like, oh, Jesus came, so now we don't have to do stuff. (laughs) Jesus is not telling us that holiness doesn't matter. Jesus is telling us that your holiness is insufficient. Do you see the difference? You'll have to be born again. Or it's not happening. Because you died on your journey to the kingdom of God in your own strength. You died. So is it impossible? Is it impossible? How's it going to come to us? What's the solution to Nicodemus' desperation? The answer? Jesus' death brings new birth. Jesus' death brings new birth. When the Son of God dies for sinners... The son is forsaken and the sinners are brought in. Let me say that again. When the son of God dies for sinners, when the son of God dies for sinners, the son is forsaken and the sinners are adopted. We are born of God through this selfless one. When the son of man is lifted up, John is going to tell us, that when the son of man is lifted up, those who look to him will be adopted. They will come to life. They will have new birth. They get a new name. They have a new family. We will have been born of the Spirit. They will be given the right to be called the children of God, just like it said in chapter 1. We will be born again by the work of the perfect Son. 
Do you see that this transaction that takes place? But that work has to be completed when the Son of Man dies. When Jesus, on the cross, calls out to his Father and addresses him as, my God, instead of my Father, now we can call him Father. You see that? Almost every time that Jesus addresses God in the Gospels, he calls him Father. You know that? Almost every time Jesus looks at God and says, my Father. But what does he say on the cross? He says the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's in that moment that we can look at him and say, Father. So how does new birth begin? It begins when the son is raised up and dies in our place. So how do we enter into the new birth? Jesus says this, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended. So Nicodemus, you want to be born again. You want to find eternal life. You want to ascend. You want to be a part of the kingdom of God. You must give up on yourself and follow the Son. Or you will not have life. You will not have life. You must look to the Son and give up on yourself. New birth is not going to come to the arrogant religious person. It is going to come, as the Gospel of Matthew says, to the poor in spirit. It's going to come to the poor in spirit. The kingdom of God is not going to come to those who look at themselves and, and, and think, I got this. It's going to come to those who look at themselves and say, I don't got this. There's no chance. I'm not making it. I bring nothing to this transaction with God. <laughs> I, I bring nothing to this transaction with God. I'm poor. I'm needy. I'm like a little child. I have nothing. And that's how the new birth happens. That's how the new birth happens. Jesus says, look to the sun. Don't look to your checklist. <laughs> look to the sun. And this might seem quite hard. It might seem harsh. It might seem almost cruel. It might seem like God doesn't actually want people to come. This might turn us off to God. This might Make us want to keep a distance from God. Like who wants to go into business with someone who sets their standards so impossibly high that you failed before you even start? But this is actually where the heart of the new birth is going to come in. Not just the process of it, but the heart of it. Because Jesus isn't finished yet talking to Nicodemus. It is impossible for you to see the kingdom of God without being born again. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that it is impossible for him to birth himself. Of course. Someone else must be acting, right? Someone else must be doing the work. And the beautiful answer to that dilemma is that it's God. It's God who's going to do the work. It's God who's going to move. God is going to bring us to life. Jesus is not trying to keep Nicodemus away. Don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's not trying to keep Nicodemus away. In fact, he's going to say the most famous verse in the Bible right to Nicodemus' face. <laughs> This is the heart of the new birth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I am not here to condemn the world. Nicodemus, he's going to go on and say verse 17. I'm not here to condemn the world. I'm here to save it. I'm not here to condemn you, Nicodemus. I'm here to save you. But you have to look to me. But you have to look to me. 
as he's going to reference a story back in Numbers chapter 21. But as helpless as your fathers were back in the desert, there's this crazy story about these snakes coming through the camp and biting everybody. Moses takes one, or Aaron takes one, puts them up on a big old staff and says, if you look to this one, you'll be saved from these snakes. Crazy story, right? But Jesus is saying, as helpless as your fathers were in the wilderness, that's how helpless you are, Nicodemus. I know you've, you've spent your life with a checklist, but you're helpless. Will you look to me and find life? I, I know that this sounds like this because that's exactly what it is, is that you are incapable of doing something you must do. <laughs> that's pretty tough to hear. It sounds like death, and it is, but it's also life. Okay? It is death, but it's life. When you realize that someone far more powerful and capable than you is going to do what you were supposed to do all along, it'll set you free. You see that? When someone way more powerful than you, way more capable than you, is going to do what you have to do, it'll set you free. It'll set you free. Do you see the good news here? I hope you do. That no matter how good you are, no matter how pulled together you are, you must be born again. And, or but, and, no matter how broken you are, no matter how messed up you are, you can be born again. Right? Some of you, I'm sure, look around and you're like, that person's got to put together, that person's, well, guess what? That person's got to be born again too. And you, maybe you look around and you're like, those people are messed up. Well, guess what? They can be born again. <laughs> they can be. Amazing. We don't get to hear Nicodemus' response to Jesus in this passage. John, who knows if they parted ways, shook hands, did a little, I don't know. Uh, we don't get to hear the end of Nicodemus' story here. In fact, he drops out of the story until chapter 19. Nicodemus, this same guy, amazing, is there at the death of Jesus. There was a lot of people at the death of Jesus, so that's not particularly unique. But what is unique is what happens next he is the one who is given the body of Jesus to prepare it for burial. And you say, what's going on there? What's going on with Nicodemus? At the beginning, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he was afraid of being seen talking to Jesus. And now, Nicodemus is taking the body of Jesus. This man killed by the Jewish people at the hands of the Romans, the enemy of both religious and political institutions. He's taking the body of this dead person and preparing it for burial, a public event. He's anything but ashamed of Jesus now. So whatever happened here, Nicodemus is not ashamed of Jesus now. He's a religious leader, a Pharisee, and he is doing something incredibly unclean. He is touching a dead, mangled body. And he doesn't care. Like Jewish law says that this is a, this is a dirty job. And Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, says, give him to me. Because it appears he has, in fact, been born again. He has had his spiritual eyes opened. He sees the worth, the value, the beauty of Jesus for what it really is. He is willing to give up his status and privilege to hold the body of his Lord. You see? He has embraced a new life. He has embraced the broken body of his Savior, the one who's been lifted up. And he's been born again. No shame in Nicodemus anymore. No coming at night. <laughs> he took his body. 
he found new birth. So, okay, that's Nicodemus, but what about us? What about us? How, how are we going to find new birth? How can I be born again? And also, maybe just as important, how can I know that I've been born again? Um, and Jesus says answers to both of those things. So, obvious one, right here off the top, have you looked to Jesus? Have you given up on yourself? Have you seen the scope of your weakness and gone to Jesus in faith as your only hope? Have you? If yes, you've been reborn. Praise God. You have found new birth. Because only the Holy Spirit can get you there. Only in the Spirit do we say Jesus is Lord. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. This this doesn't mean that you look at yourself like a piece of garbage. (laughs) That's the amazing thing about the new birth. (laughs) No, Ruth was totally incapable of birthing herself. And no, she is not a piece of garbage. It doesn't mean you look at yourself like a piece of garbage. It means you've allowed yourself to enter into an utterly hopeless state and be found to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and to find all of the worth and value and beauty that God can offer you. And now, miracle of miracles, he doesn't just pull you out of hell. He says you can boldly approach the throne. You're not just taken from hell. You're like given into a family. Who gets to interrupt the king while he's sleeping? Only his kids, right? Our God doesn't sleep. (laughs) Our God doesn't sleep. I'm just saying, you got access, right? Put it to you this way. Ruth, my daughter, she cries because it is in her. Her like instinct is now what? To call out to vow. She's hungry. She's sleepy. She pooped. Doesn't matter. The one thing we do is cry for mom. It's what we do. It's in our nature now. Don't let the devil steal you away from the most precious part of your nature, which is access to God. You're his child. You look at him and you say, I can walk in. I I can walk in because of what Jesus has done for me, because the son was lifted up, because he looked at God and said, why have you forsaken me? Now you, you can see the face of God and he says, come on in. Not, listen, it doesn't happen any other way. <laughs> no mistakes here. It doesn't happen any other way. It happens because Jesus has died. But because Jesus has died and risen again, you look at God and you say, my father, and you run in the room. No fear, no shame. Just like Ruth, you get to cry. You get to cry out. And he listens. This is from D.A. Carson here. This is talking about spiritual sight. He says this, the soul that sees, the soul that gets spiritual sight, though it may have not discerned it before, it now discerns in the truths of God a beauty and an excellence of which it had no conception until now. Which is He's Carson, that's up here, he's a smart guy. But I just want to unpack that in some like simple things. What, what he's saying is, are you beginning to hate sin? The stuff that you loved, the stuff that moved you, the stuff that moved your heart, is that stuff gross to you now? Do you want to keep that stuff away from you now? I know not all the time, we'll talk about that in a second, I know it's hard. But are you beginning to have a distaste for sin? Are you beginning to hate sin? Because when we start to see Jesus is valuable, what does the old hymn say? The things of this world grow strangely dim, right? 
Are you also, are you beginning to see Jesus more clearly? Are you beginning to see the way he works in your life? Are you beginning to, to see the graces that he's given to you, even in loss and in tragedy, that he is giving us grace to move us toward him, that he's working all things together? Are you, do you now have eyes to see that? Because how helpless are we in the world without Jesus when death approaches us? We're helpless. we got nothing. But when death approaches us and we have Jesus, we look at him and we say, that's my guy. Right? Like, so are you starting to see through Jesus' eyes, not through world eyes? Are you beginning to love people that for you before would have been very hard to love? Those, that takes spiritual eyes. People that irritate you just kind of irritate you until you see them with the eyes of God. And, they, and God says, that's my child. I love them. They're in my image. Like, don't you see why they're awesome? And you say, mm, okay, a little less irritating today. <laughs> a little less. It goes, right? Are you beginning to be a blessing to the people around you? Are you beginning to look outside yourself and say, I, I can give, like I was talking about. I, I can give. I, I don't have to keep all the water to myself. I can, I can let some of this out here beginning to be a blessing to the people. That's evidence of spiritual eyes because what does the world say? The world says keep, keep, keep. The world says hoard and build yourself. But spiritual eyes say look to your brother who's in need, right? So are you, is the fruit of the spirit getting grown on your branches and given away because the tree doesn't eat its own fruit, right? <laughs> fruit of the spirit grows on your branches but it ain't for you. It's not so you're like, oh, look at how much love and peace I got, you know? No, it's so that your neighbor would receive some of that peace from you. Right? So some of that sounds really spiritual, and it's because we're talking about spiritual eyes, but I want to ask you a simple question. Are, are you trying one step, one moment of discipline at a time? Are you trying? And I know I hear you. I heard myself. We talked about this. It's not willpower. Christianity is not a willpower religion. It's, it's a power of the Spirit. But here's what I want to say this to you. It's from uh, a guy who talks a lot about discipleship. His name's Dallas Willard. He says this, that God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. You see the difference there? God is not opposed to Nicodemus acting out the fruit of the Spirit. God, Jesus is opposed to him coming to him and saying, so what do I got to do, man? The answer to that is you, you don't got it, right? But the answer to, like, when the Spirit starts moving in your heart He's, he's not opposed to you giving effort. He's opposed to you thinking that you're going to get something from God simply by your effort. You already have everything in him, right? There's no effort left to get something from God. You have his favor. Uh, an old teacher of mine used to say, not from, we don't work for the favor of God. We work from the favor of God, right? I love that. You're not earning new birth. You are giving evidence of it, okay? Uh, so if Ruth, we'll go back to my, Nine-day-old daughter. If Ruth was not breathing or eating or pooping or crying, we would say that she is not giving evidence of her new birth, right? If she wasn't doing these things, these, hitting these checkpoints, we would say, there is no evidence of birth here. Fortunately, she's got all the evidence of birth, right? Lots of poop. Your list from God, like the, the ways that we respond to God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit, maybe is a little more complicated than crying and pooping, but it's evidence of new life. That's what it is. It's fruit of the Spirit in your life. If you have found new birth, if we've been given a new nature, then we live a new way. Simple? 
when we enter into the family of God, we should live like our father. We should emulate our father, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, as dearly loved children. We have to change how we act, how we live, because we carry his name, right? It would be, my last name is Flanagan. It would be a bummer if you all were like, those guys freaking suck, because I know this one, you know, must have been raised by a real loser, you know, like those Flanagans. Like, that would be a bummer if you felt that way about my family because of how I treated you, <laughs> right? But we have been invited into the family of God. We bear his name. Are we representing Jesus in a way that actually shows people, like, this is a family you want to be a part of, and the door's open. <laughs> so are you living like you belong to this family where this new birth has taken place? Or are you living like you belong to the family of the world? Listen, you can't change who your birth parents are, and fortunately, the same is true with God. I'm, this isn't for condemnation. You're not getting kicked out of the family. <laughs> I'm just asking a question. Are you living like this is your home? Right? Are you living like he's your father and we are representing him? We live that type of way. A couple of object- objections real fast. I think they're important to grab onto because the devil is the worst, so we want to answer him now. But I fail all the time, you say. I fail all the time. I'm sure you do. (laughs) I I do too. Uh, I had a professor in college who told me this, and I've held it in my heart uh, for many years now because I held it as like the greatest encouragement and also reality check. He said this, the mark of his sanctification was that he was sinning less, but he was confessing more. Okay, so let me unpack that real quick. He basically said day to day, probably, if we're actually trying to weigh these things on the scales, which you probably shouldn't do because you don't know. Um, But he was probably sinning less. He was more patient with his kids, more loving toward his wife, more careful in his thought life, more generous with other people. But he was confessing more. Let me try to explain that because what, what he told me was the spirit was at work in him. So now he's actually able to identify more and more the things that are actually broken down in there. When Jesus first comes in, sometimes we deal with the surface stuff and we're like, yes, I did it. And then Jesus gets to work, (laughs) right? And he starts to work and work and it gets deeper and deeper in there. And so it probably is that the more we move on in this journey of faith, we are hopefully going to be sinning less. But we're going to start also becoming more aware of our stuff. And so don't let the devil look at you and be like, hey, Jesus is talking to you about your sin therefore you are not saved. No, evidence that you are saved is that Jesus is talking to you about your sin. That's a good thing. It's not condemnation. It's conviction. We want to be in tune to the Spirit, right? We want to be listening. That is evidence that we've been born. We can hear, right? That's a good thing. Don't let the devil turn that into condemnation. It's, it's freedom and joy to kill sin. It's just hard. So hopefully, the truth is, as we walk on, we are sinning less, and we are confessing more. The closer we get to Jesus, oftentimes, the more we become aware of our sin. And and let me tell you, I believe that's actually a mark of your new birth, not a mark against you. So don't think that your awareness of your sin is going to keep you from Jesus. It's probably Jesus giving you the awareness of your sin. That's part of what he does. John chapter 16 says the Holy Spirit's going to come and convict the world concerning righteousness. You're probably part of that. Come to Jesus. Embrace Jesus. Let him embrace you. You have to let the new birth work in you. You have to. 
you got to let it work in you. Uh, don't look at Kaipo's passion or Josh, Josh's relational intentionality or Sean's wisdom or Tess's generosity. Don't look at those people and just be like, if I'm not doing all of those things tomorrow, I'm not a part of the family of God. Stop. <laughs> Ruth came out of the womb doing nothing but laying, crying, sleeping, pooping. That's it. Okay? It's new birth. We don't come out of the womb sprinting. She's got to learn how to do that stuff, right? She's got to learn how to do that stuff. And just like Ruth, she's got two big sisters who are going to teach her the way, right? Just like Ruth, I've got Pastor Sean. I've got Pastor Josh. I've got Pastor Kaipo. i got Auntie Tess. i I got these people so that they help me walk. Someday they help me run. Someday they pick me up on a trip, Right? But don't let the devil tell you that just because you are not these people that you're not a part of the family of God. That's garbage. It's nonsense. It's not from God. Don't let him lie. <laughs> Fine, Josh. And Josh is messed up. <laughs> I'll let everybody else speak for themselves. But Josh, no. But Timothy, Timothy Keller says this. Let me read this to you. Timothy Keller, he says, let me be as practical as I can possibly be, which is a great intro for a pastor to give. Odds are he's not. Anyways, uh, he is about to, just right here. Don't you ever underestimate the power of the new birth to change somebody. Never underestimate that power. Look, here's Peter. Peter was soft, squishy, impulsive, too much so. Here's Paul, almost the opposite, hard, over-controlled, abrasive, and harsh. But they were born again, and they were turned into world-changing Christians. They were not made of any more promising material than you. There is no fear, there is no guilt, there is no hurt, there is no flaw that the new birth can't repair. So, do not let the devil steal your life from you. Second objection, real quick. I don't know if I love Jesus like I'm supposed to. I don't know if I love Jesus like I'm supposed to. Uh, once again, I'm sure you don't. <laughs> I learned this, uh, this old Puritan guy named John Owen, but he talks about this. He says, when you say stuff like that, you actually invert the gospel equation, okay? When you say this, you hang your salvation on your ability to love God. You invert the equation. John writes in 1 John 4:19. he says, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. When you say stuff like, oh, I'm not sure I love Jesus enough, well, you don't. You, you don't, okay? But that, that gospel, what you're saying is not that God loved me, but that I loved him. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that while we were sinners, he died for us because he loved us. While we were still his enemies, while we were nailing him to the cross, he died for us. It's, it's not a question of how much feeling of love toward God can you muster at any given moment. Your salvation, your new birth, rests solidly in the unchanging, steadfast, unconditional love of Jesus for you coming through the Spirit of God. You understand? It's, that, that is what will change you. That's what grows the fruit of the Spirit on your branches. Not trying to... No. It's responding to the gospel. And when you see the only son of God losing his place and dying in your place so that you could be adopted into that family and you let that break your heart and then rebuild it again, you're being reborn. You're being reborn. You're leaving here, leaving this conversation with Jesus begging for help. You're leaving this conversation ready to receive something, not ready to present something, you see? Look to the sun, 
and we'll find life. Look to the sun, we'll find life. Let me pray. Jesus, I, I just thank you, God, that in you we have life. In you we can find life. Jesus, if we believe in you, if we have sensitivity to you, it's because of the Spirit. And so we thank you, God, for the life of the Spirit. We thank you, God, that you bring us to life. And, and God, I feel like I'd be missing an opportunity if we didn't just say, God, if you're doing this in someone's heart right now, Lord, if you're moving someone to receive this new birth, we thank you, God. I just pray, God, a boldness in our hearts, Lord, to respond to your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray if there are people here who have never received this new birth, God, would you, Holy Spirit, would you move in their hearts now? Would you invite them in? Would you move in their hearts? Would you be like that wind? God, would you blow and move in our hearts? And God, for those of us who who know you, who've been trying to know you, Lord, who keep coming back to you with a checklist, keep coming back to you with a list of things that we are not sure if we've accomplished or not, not sure if you're going to be proud of us or not, Lord, would you help us to set that aside and come to you as your little children who you love with unshakable, immovable love, the perfect love of a perfect father who has loved us Not while we called ourselves his children, but while we called ourselves his enemies, while we spit on you, while we nailed you to the cross. You were loving us then. God, would you just help us as as people of trying to do this on our own? Lord, would you forgive us of that? And would you help us to come to you humbly as little children? Lord, loved by you, free in you, secure in you, able to run up to you. Jesus, we love you so much, and we thank you, God, that you love us first. Lord, that there's nothing that we can do to make you love us more. There's no prize we could come back with. There's no trophy we could come back with that would make you more proud. God, you are pleased. You said on the cross it is finished. God, you look at us as the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he gave up his life for us. So we just pray we would rest secure. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.